Welcome today to the Learning with Lowell podcast. Every Tuesday we will have new episodes. Like clockwork, you can look forward to anything regarding science, startups, scientists, you name it. We're going to have it every Tuesday. Thursdays we'll usually have a YouTube video because I record these both in audio and video formats now. And keep your eyes peeled for a live stream coming up next month in March. Just want to let you all know that we're trying new things. Remember to subscribe, let people know, and let's get into today's show and who's joined us today. Today we are joined with covalent bioscience Stephanie and Sudhir, both doctors working to develop successfully affordable better antibodies and vaccines for a range of unmet medical needs, specifically applying catabodies and e-vaccine platform technologies which promise to generate multiple products by treating and preventing life-threatening diseases. In this episode, we get into what they built, why they built it, why they spun out of academia to build this covalent bioscience startup, and a lot about them as well, and even some book recommendations at the end, which I myself have read, and I recommend the ones that they suggested. So let's get into this. I'm kind of curious, uh, how did, like, why did, I don't know, like, how did you two meet, and what made you two want to work together to, like, bunt out and create something together? So maybe I'll start because I'm the one who joined Dr. Sudhir Paul's uh, lab. I was uh, 22. I was finishing my engineering in France and uh, I wanted to, I had to do a project. That's how you get your degree. You have to do a project. And I, I had worked on the field of catalytic antibodies already in my university. And so I had the opportunity to join uh, Dr. Sudhir Paul's lab. And uh, so I joined as a very low level at that time. You know, I was very enthusiastic uh, scientist. I enjoyed the bench and uh, I just fell in love with the, with the field. And uh, I did my PhD in the lab and, uh, and I just, just believe on the platform technology that we have developed through the years. And I just want to continue and hopefully um, make it with the, uh, the patients. That's my goal. So okay, I guess that kind of answered it for both parties. So you you met her in the like like really twenty years ago. That's a really long time. Almost uh, twenty, yeah, yeah. Wow. So my my uh, sort of insert into what she said is that um, she came to our group um, as an intern, and she called it low. But uh, you know, young is not low. I'm old. And uh, there are sort of uh, ways of thinking that we all develop as you get older. We get fixed in not only pronunciation of names, the way we pronounce it, the way we exchange earlier, but but also about the ways of thinking. And and uh, it's not low at all. It's uh, pretty high. Um, and uh, and I. Stephanie, I just look forward to completing whatever we can do in, in, in the shortest time possible. Which, which, on a contemporaneous note, I should say that that is the big struggle uh, uh, Stephanie and I face on a daily matter. We work as a daily matter. We work very closely together. How to just get the little things done and the big things done. And it's not so easy because of the complicated issues at hand, not to speak of our our daily grind that all of us have to fulfill. So how to make time, how to, how to 
get the time used most optimally is a subject of frequent discussion between us. Well, um, so I, I've been told to try to like have people explain complex terms because <laughs> like uh, I, I interviewed George Church and we uh, uh, apparently I, like, I didn't ask him to clarify a lot of stuff. So how what, what are catal catalytic antibodies? If I said the, the right said it right, like how would you describe that to a person who has never experienced that before? Um, <clears throat> and, and do you know what I mean, I guess I can first define an antibody. So an antibody is basically a molecule that your body makes that uh, is usually in a simplistic way is thought to uh, tag and find the bad things that are in your body. And uh, these antibodies have the particularity of uh, having also an enzymatic activity. And an enzyme is usually is a, is a protein that uh, can modify uh, other permanently other protein. So basically, we have an, a, a, a catalytic antibody is an antibody that can uh, actively modify and permanently modify the bad and toxic protein that uh, your body may encounter. And um, yeah, that's just my take. Hopefully, it's clear enough for you. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Would you have anything to add to that, Sudhir? I, I think uh, in what she said. You know, this is the functional uh, way we think about it, but there are issues of the target that need to be incorporated. The target, which is either a foreign target, an alien target belonging to a, to a microbe, belonging to an infectious organism, or it could be a self-target belonging to us. So antibodies... Uh, are very specific. They have the ability to bind in a specific manner to the target. If the target is harmful, then the antibody exerts a good effect. If the target is a beneficial target, meaning the molecules that allow us to survive, the molecules that make up our body that allow us to survive, then the antibody often is harmful and it results in autoimmune disease. And so the second point, uh, just as an add-on to what Stephanie said, is that uh, the, the antibodies are binders in the textbook. And many people since, since uh, Linus Pauling have been speaking about how to, how to make them catalytic. So the, the power of catalysis is twofold. One is it permanently changes the target. Chemically, it changes the target. So you don't have the same target left. You, you, can, uh, you can either get a harmless target now or you can get a harmful target by, because of the chemical transformation. And the other power of catalysis is that uh, a single molecule of a catalyst can uh, chemically transform thousands, even millions of target molecules. And without catalysis, without enzymes, which are the classical catalysts, um, we wouldn't have life as we know life. So we need catalysis. We discovered that uh, antibodies have catalytic activity. They're not just enzymes. And people have been trying to, 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 to find catalytic antibodies 
since Linus Pauling based on quantum mechanical type of arguments, but that didn't work out. And what did work out was an accidental discovery of catalysis and by our group by antibodies. And one thing led to another, but, but the bottom line is catalysis is a powerful uh, activity. And if you can combine this classical specificity of antibodies with it, then you have a new and potent way of uh, treating disease. And that is what has kept the field going for 70 years. We just happened to be the people who reduced it to practice. We found these catalysts and then we made a story out of it. And now we are ready to, to, to trans transition to medical interventions. Will this, will this be your first, like, jumping off to, to build something? Or have you worked in companies before? Or is it, I, I think you, you both have been acad academics for your entire careers, right? Right. Both of us have been academics, me for about uh, 40 years and Stephanie for about 20. And uh, we have now left our faculty jobs just a couple of months back because we are so close to medical intervention that we feel it deserves our full-time attention. So, so we, and, and academics is great to discover new things, which we have done a lot. But it's time to take discoveries and make uh, translate them to to delivery of uh, medicines. So I, I have had experience with I've been funded by biotech companies in addition to nonprofit sources, and I also had my own company, which was sold off to uh, to another company. So I, I have some knowledge of uh, companies, biotech industry in general. I'm familiar, but this would be the first. Uh, full-time effort I'm making to to, 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 to to get medicines based on catalytic and antibodies and, and electrophilic vaccines out. Is it is it scary at all to like make, make that transition from like academia a full-time of that to like going off and, and building your own thing? Um, I, I don't know, Stephanie, if you want to go first. Like does it, yeah. Actually, no, for me, not at all. It's almost a, a relief. I think uh, we had outgrown the academy settings for the past couple of years. And it was becoming too suffocating for us. They were piling a lot of bureaucratic uh, uh, requirements for us to be able to both continue as a professor and assistant professor sir, at, the, uh, at the university and try to move forward and try to deliver our um, our uh, product to the, the patient. So uh, I just actually feel more free now that I've left. And it's pretty exciting to actually start something uh, like that. Um, I think we are on the road. We just raised some funds. We, we are finding a lab. We are going to get set up very soon. So it's actually pretty exciting right now. Not that so scary. Great. My, my two cents worth of that is that that Stephanie is the one, if somebody is to be intimidated because of the transition, it ought to be Stephanie because she's much younger. I have been a professor for 40 years. For me, it is exciting uh, that I'm getting a chance, as Stephanie said, that we are getting a chance to, to now, in a more dedicated way, move towards uh, the translation. Uh, it is a little saddening, I guess, for me that it didn't work out exactly as I've been trying to get it to work out for the last 15, 20 years at the University of Texas, where we thought it was possible to combine it. 
the, the, the delivery to patients, which is part of the university statement, mission statement that we must develop new medicines from bench to bedside. And, and I'm a little sad that uh, the procedural aspects, you know, combining the, the so-called academic search for, for truth, if you will, and delivery to patients, combining it with the practical issues, the profit motive, if you will, in, in uh, business and in biotech industry, <coughs> it turned out to be more difficult than I had anticipated. And so personally, I gave up on the so-called uh, search for just finding new things as an academic and how to combine it to delivery to patients. And I think the trouble is the, the profit motive versus the search for truth. That that's the conflict that society has not quite uh, rationalized uh, thus far, at least not in my university, my erstwhile university. Do you know of any universities that have a good like structure that translates like translational medicine and that type of thing? Is it, are there are there any of them that are known to be good at that, or is it all like a universal like yeah, this is kind of how it normally is like that type what? of experience? It's been universal for um, 500 years. Uh, the, the meaning that when you want unbiased uh, documentation of uh, discoveries and inventions, uh, you want it unbiased. You don't want to be colored by other people coming in and say, I got to get some benefit out of it personally. You, you, the search for truth is a fundamental human uh, drive. On the other hand, the, the, the search for lucre, for, for money, and for, for advanced utilitarian. So it's not all bad. The money, if it is truly translated into utilitarian benefit for, for humans, well, that's... <coughs> and so this conflict has been, is age old. Uh, many universities in the United States, it is the U.S. that sort of tried to combine the... <clears throat> the two motives in a, in, a, in a harmonious way. Some universities do it better than others, not because of rationalizing the philosophies. They do it by developing rules that, uh, that the academics understand, that they are consistently applied across many unpredictable situations, and it makes it easy to get, uh, uh, to get the job done, to keep doing good work, Without getting bogged down with with arguments and and what intellectual property or or are you conflicted? Is there a conflict of interest? Are you doing something unethical or something illegal? So so those things are just a uh, the, 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 some universities do it better than others because they've figured out ways to put the 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 unimportant stuff into the background and people can get about do, uh, go about doing the really important stuff, which is discovering and translating and delivering to patients. That makes sense. But, uh, one quite, one kind of like fun question before we jump into like the really meaty science stuff is that when you're not working to, you know, build a, build a company to make something that can help people with neurodegenerative disorders and the like, like, what are you, what are you guys doing for fun? Like what, what, what is, what do you like outside the lab? Um, like any anything creative, any artistic, any yeah. Basically, what are you passionate about? Like that's not science, if, unless like science is just like your entire world. 
<laughs> Stephanie, you go first. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, so first I'm, I'm a mom with two kids, so, um, free time is, uh, is a luxury for me. But when I have free time, I actually like to, I like to paint. I think it gives like, uh, my mind is just more free. Uh, it uses a di- more a different part of my brain. The discipline doesn't have to be there, so it's kind of a, a nice uh, a nice time for me. And I would spend for one hour, two hours if I can. But uh, it's almost cathartic, I would say, after all this. I'll just uh, build on. I guess what you said, Stephanie, it gives me a chance to to figure out for myself what I do for, for fun. Uh, I've, I found that science is a continuum. So I use different parts of my brain to do different parts of science. I, I put on my fun hat and my business hat and my the, the kind of fun, imagination versus logic versus cold reasoning and hot reasoning. I do all of that in science, but having said that, uh, so a science allows me to use, to have a lot of fun. But uh, so I, I don't really even distinguish between nerd type of activities versus uh, exciting. Uh, everything is exciting for me. But, but 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 on a practical note, if I don't do physical exercise and uh, you know just concentrate on riding my bike in a, in a focused way, I'll be in trouble. So physical exercise is great. I also love to listen to to listen and participate i guess i hum along uh, classical music uh, mostly indian classical music and and then back to well i guess before i go back to science again i i'm a um, grandfather so and, and these are two younger one is three years old another is about six months old so just observing them that's a lot of a proxy type of uh, joy that I feel. Um, uh, I, I think, uh, Lowell, the, the issue of science and mixing the rest of life is not an academic issue. It's a practical issue for me, and I, I think I'm able to sort of do it. Mm-hmm. Well, the, for Stephanie, you're like the, like the sixth scientist I've spoken to who paints. The, so it's, it's, it's interesting. The I don't know if you get familiar with this book about Einstein by Walter Isaacson, and he talks about how uh, Einstein would play the violin. So it's it's really interesting to hear like scientists who are like like enjoy art at the same time. Where I think a lot of people think scientists are just you know like calculators, like they just do math and like hard stuff. But there's like there's a lot of creativity in science in general. But then I always love hearing about people who like create and have like this relaxing artist side of them as well, which I think science is very creative as well. But I, I, I'm just noting it because I, I think it's really good to hear like that. Uh, like, yeah, I'm, I'm like uh, Sudhir. Do you for the for the music that you, you hum along to? Does like I, I took a, a class on Indian uh, uh, music. So do, does any of it have like the sitar in it? That's like the only instrument I know. So I'm just pulling that out. But uh, um, the, like what type of classical music? Like if, if you had like a, a song like Beethoven Smith, like what what is one that you like? Um. You mentioned Sitar, so Ravi Shankar and now his daughter, they are both exponents, they they play the Sitar. I think the daughter also um, sings pretty well. And But but in in Indian music, so there is emphasis on 
on instrumental music. There are some unique sounds that you get out of Indian musical instruments compared to uh, Occidental or Western instruments. But but the system of music is uh, the vocal is the most developed vocal music. And there are these rags. So we call them rags. They are pretty much extempore. It's not like Beethoven Fifth Symphony. There's not much structure. The guy just, the guy or the, the woman who's singing, they just make it up. And there are a few sounds that are the base organizational. Uh, they, they are around. The music is built around a few sounds. But that's about it. The rest of it is extempore. And some of the, the this is a three, four thousand year old music. They, they amused themselves and did scientifically. The music is pretty scientific, Indian music. Um, they, they did a lot of good stuff, and and I, I like like to. In fact, it's relating it back to to creativity and discipline in science. This is the reason I find it very disciplined, and they are able to do it in real time. They don't need a textbook to tell them what to play. The creativity is not just building a small incremental creativity from de novo, right from the word get go. You, they, they are, they start creatively. So it's a, you just jump into it. So that's my take on the whole story, as, as you know, in a sort of a superficial way. I'm no musician. I just love music, Indian music particularly. Yeah, the well, I think as a people that we're all we're all kind of scientists because you have to imagine like the first person who figured out that coffee was good to eat was you know probably just like screwing with someone. It was like a bet. I think there's like a, 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 a one of my history teachers once said. That he thinks that most food started out as like a bet, like I dare you to like eat this, <laughs> and they, then they liked it. Um, it's, it's probably facetious. He probably wasn't serious. But um, speaking about kind of like evolution, the we were talking about catalytic antibodies. And I know that was one of the subjects you wanted to touch on. Uh, so, and especially because I had a, I had an antibody expert on here recently, Andrew Martin, if I remember his name right, and we talked about how like antibodies are really really specific, and yet they're like really simple. Like they're not like these like large complex structures, if I remember correctly. So I'm, we were, I asked him, but I'm, I would love to, to get in it with you. Like how would, how do these things evolve? Like how did, how do these things over time? Are there like interesting theories that you've come up with or that you're, you're, that you're fans of on how, uh, how these things came to be? So my, I'll give you my perspective of antibodies. I think a textbook foundational part of the perspective is wow. that, uh, Antibodies are uh, completely unique from uh, all other proteins that humans have. You spoke of evolution. So uh, uh, in, uh, in human evolution, our proteins are non-mutating. So they don't mutate. They don't change their sequence. They don't change their structure. Because, and, if you, and if they do, if you get a mutation... Uh, often the outcome is uh, cancer or disease, some other disease when there's a mutation. Uh, in comparison, antibodies are meant to mutate. They are adaptive. There is a already during Darwinian evolution over uh, 500 million years of uh, from the earliest fish in which we see an immune system that contains antibodies to humans, which is about 500 million years. Uh, already you see that uh, 
there is this mutable capacity in the old organisms. In the humans, it is most refined. So they are meant to, to mutate over this evolutionary uh, phase of 500 million years. They have antibody. The we have about uh, we have a very large number of antibodies. That's the first thing to recognize. Darwinian evolution. The 500 million years has already produced a large. Uh, repertoire, as we call it. And the reason is that we have to deal with a diversity of targets. Everything in our environment is a unique target, either a good target or a bad target, causes harm or causes benefit. And then when in our, after we are born humans, in our real lifetime, in real time, within a few tens of years, you, that large repertoire I mentioned, it becomes repertoire cubed, meaning it expands exponentially. And uh, you, you are constantly trying to, to, with antibodies, you're constantly trying to defend against the environment, but not harm yourself. Antibodies do that along with a few other, along with some other immune molecules. That is a distinguishing feature. And uh, 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 antibodies, the other part of this is, they are uniquely engineerable, unlike other molecules. You talked about simple structure. The, the structure is actually very complex. But work on molecular engineering of antibodies has been going on for about five decades or so, at least. And um, people have learned ways. There are conserved scaffolds that you can manipulate and, and, and uh, make uh, uh, new functions out of those scaffolds. So it's easily engineerable rather than simple by itself once you understand the structure of the molecule. Is there... I, I, I don't imagine these things fossilize. So is there, is there like a shelf life on how far back we can, we can figure out like our, our antibody ancestry? Unless they do fossilize. And I'm wrong about that. But I wouldn't imagine they fossilize easily. Um, the molecules themselves, these are proteins, and it's tough to, you, you can define the structure of an antibody from a fossil, um, or the DNA that you analyze. Protein, you don't look at, so partly out of fossils, partly out of, uh, so the ancestors, you need fossils if the ancestor has died out. But then you can also look at old organisms that live, for example, in the deep sea water, hagfish and lamprey, eels and so forth. And uh, people have mapped from humans going back. Um, the early jawed fish were our first ancestors in which we can see uh, an antibody molecule of the type that uh, is present in modern times in humans. Now, having said that, there are um, the, 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 the evolution of antibodies is thought to be really essential for survival. And people say that there are missing links that have disappeared because uh, the antibodies were not fully evolved and they were not competitive, these old organisms. Um, so this give you, gives you a sense that this defense and offense against defense against, and offense against foreign 
um, entities. And then coping with not killing yourself while you are defending. You know, I, I, I'm reminded. I'm reminded of what's going on in our politics. Although I promised myself I won't mention that. But the way we are going, we keep worrying about the enemies, and you keep uh, corrupting yourself as you fight your enemy. I think that's a part of a part of human nature. And so there is a cultural sort of a lesson that we can learn about autoimmunity and about foreign immunity is, I guess, what I'm thinking. I think there's a Frederick Nietzsche quote where it's like, don't uh, beware staring too deeply into the darkness because the darkness stares back. Or is it? Um, I know that is one. I know that is a quote, but I, I think there's one that there's one that literally says, like, be careful what you hunt because you'll end up becoming what you hunt. Like, you'll, like take on ad, attributes of it. But um, Stephanie, do you have anything to add to what Sadir has been saying? Or like, are, are you like, yeah, I agree with that. Next well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, we share we share the same philosophy. I will just add that um, uh, one one animal that we are um, one mammal that we are much uh, interested in is the sharks because they they have antibody uh, structure that are even similar to ours. To uh, so, and those those species have uh, been there for um, millions of years before us. So, and the way the immune system works is very different than ours. So Dr. Paul talked about the ability of our immune system to mutate and to, the shark doesn't have that. And yet they are able to, to, to survive, uh, in their environment. So, um, it's nice to also see how the immune systems are different between species. Uh, it uh, teaches you about the potential evolution of the immune system. And uh, I think it also teaches us about the the origin of the catalytic antibodies. Uh, we, we believe the catalytic function is actually uh, encoded in our gene already. And it was inherited through Darwinian evolution. So... Um, so evolution is a, a, a helpful uh, subject for us. I think it, we try to make sense. Uh, so we are we are a company. We are supposed to make products, but we like to make sense about the science. It's not only we are not having fun just by delivering product, but getting knowledge is a, a big part of our uh, daily 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 life. Yeah. So I think. I, I, sorry, I'll, I'll just say a couple of uh, things about that subject. Uh, first, uh, fish, before mammals evolved, uh, sharks are a, a correct reference point. They are less mutable. Just for the record, they have that, that mutability has evolved already in sharks, and in fact. The theory is that the, 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 that we don't find uh, ancestral species with non-mutable antibodies because the mutability is extremely important for survival. So the missing links would be the ones that are non-mutable. Now the sharks, our catalysis, as Stephanie pointed out, uh, sharks have unique antibody structures like single domain antibodies and like IgMs which are right which are carried on right up to humans and sharks do not have IgGs 
which are the modern human variety of our offense and defense with which we succeed in living and defending ourselves. Uh, it turns out that catalysis is a primordial function and it is best expressed in the in that scaffold, in the very ancestral scaffold, now which was contrary to expectation. I mentioned Linus Pauling earlier and, and the thought was that if you follow the same rules as you would for regular antibodies, that you get the best binding by, by engineering the best binding, by manipulating structures and by also by immunization. You know that you can immunize with the target. That's the principle of vaccination. You immunize with the target and antibodies are produced as a response. And, and that's, that works mostly through IgG uh, type of antibodies. We find that the ancestral IgM as opposed to IgG scaffold is even better for catalysis. So it was a kind of a shock for me when we discovered that in fact catalysis is, a, is an old function um, that uh, evolved uh, as a blunt instrument of defense and then building the specificity on top of catalysis. Remember chemical, chemical transformation and turnover, one molecule of catalyst, a thousand molecules of target. That's, those are the hallmarks of catalysis. So if you build specificity into it, which is the hallmark of modern antibodies, very specific recognition of the target, if you combine the blunt-edged catalytic activity that we inherited from our ancestors, including sharks, uh, and with the, with the more refined discrimination between different targets through the binding mechanism, you combine them and you have a biotechnological and academic winner on your hands, which is the reason we are committed, both of us, to devoting ourselves to our company now. Mm -hmm. I think... I think this would be a good time to like launch into what you're building and that I, one of the things that I thought was really exciting because I, I like brains, like brains are like my thing. I, I think brains are very beautiful, but the, there, there were some implications for neurodegenerative disorders, like the, what you're making, if I remember correctly, and I'm looking at my notes, but um, so how to like read this question, just because like it was, I wanted to make sure I said it right. Like you guys are developing essentially e-vaccines to introduce catabodies and their molecular cousins to like make basically make like the antibodies to do what you want from memory is that like a good way to describe what you're building or would you describe it differently step you go first i will uh, add only brief comments and i'll try to be brief i i that's another thing i need to watch i don't want to pontificate like a professor i want to be brief and focused like a like a biotech uh, uh, industry executive if you will step you go first you're brief <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So basically, so, I mean, history, I will give a small history, uh, to explain where the platform comes from. But, uh, we tried to develop, uh, catalytic antibodies and, uh, we developed tools and probes to be able to either, uh, capture them or to, to make them, induce them by vaccination. So, so this, the, the, those tools are electrophilic antigens. Those are basically uh, a molecule that has uh, on its surface some, some uh, chemically reactive um, uh, moiety 
that are able to um, specifically and uh, irreversibly, that means when they bind, they don't dissociate, uh, the, they can bind to the B-cell receptor uh, of B-cells or antibody that are found on the surface of the cells. So uh, you, those probes that have been used to isolate uh, antibody from antibody libraries can also be used as vaccine, and we call them e-vaccine. And the purpose of this uh, e-vaccine would be to basically um, make the, the patient that received the vaccine able to induce a protective immune response with catalytic function, or what you are trying to say, the causing, the causing function is uh, antibody with irreversible binding. That means they, they bind with infinite affinity. They bind and they don't release. The immune complex remains. And we, we have found that um, the catalytic function, as well as the irreversible functions, are superior uh, to the regular uh, non-covalent uh, binding function of ordinary uh, antibodies. Yeah, Sadir, did you have anything to... I wanted to give you an opportunity before I ask a follow-up. Yeah, so I, I want to sort of distill what Stephanie said. We have, uh, as a company, we have patented what we call electrophilic, electrophilic target analogs. So electrophilic means that the analog now that we make chemically is it loves electrons and it can react covalently with its counterpart that is being loved called nucleophilic targets. Now these, nu uh, th these nucleophilic uh, uh, um, atoms are found in the antibodies that we discovered in nature. We discovered naturally occurring antibodies. We did not engineer them. We did not immunized. These were human antibodies. And now we use both human libraries and uh, some ancient libraries, the shark library that has been mentioned, uh, to pull out using our electrophilic target analogs. We pull out the best catalysts from these libraries. So these are rare, they're very specific, and they are they, they, they turnover, the, the catalytic rate is very high, and these are our drugs. That's one route, one, one pathway to, to the medical interventions, and you mentioned it, neurodegeneration. So we have such um, antibodies, catalytic antibodies, uh, to targets of Alzheimer's disease in the brain, and then we also have uh, such antibodies to uh, targets of a slightly different sort. They are also amyloids, as in Alzheimer's disease, but these amyloids, they deposit in the backbone and in old age particularly, they, they cause havoc, they, they cause uh, the backbone to degenerate. Uh, there is Older people are affected uh, badly by, by these diseases. So these catalytic antibodies are against self-proteins that are bad proteins. And then we have catalytic antibodies to, to, to external threats like HIV and HCV and drug-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. All of them are being pulled out from the libraries that I mentioned. Now, the vaccination is that we immunize, that means we take an animal and we, and this could be a human, then we'd call it vaccination 
for humans, uh, we, we immunize the organism with the electrophilic analog and that electrophilic analog itself induces the body's own immune system to produce catalytic antibodies. So this is something new. Moreover, we have found that uh, because the reaction of these analogs with the, with the cells that produce the antibodies is covalent, that means it is so stable, this is unknown in nature, that you can uh, induce a, a, a biological function like defense and offense by antibodies by the covalent reaction, which is super stable compared to the conventional non-covalent reaction. The result, to make a long story short, out of the new chemistry, the result is that we are able to to engineer outcomes through vaccination that are impossible in nature. We call that covalent or electrophilic vaccination. We have a lead, uh, cat, uh, we have a lead electrophilic vaccine against HIV. And if our company, uh, depending on how the financing comes through for different aspects of the company, we, we would like to develop these two major platform technologies on a sort of a graduated basis, drug at a time, a platform issue at a time. Um, and we see our technologies then as if, if it works out the way we conceive as a as broad technologies from which we can tap we can pull out many different medicines against different uh, uh, diseases and likewise many different vaccines against different diseases. How, how much, because you said you did a lot of the research as academics and you're like basically going the last, last mile to convert it to the human populations to be applied. How, how much, like if you were to like guesstimate a time, like are, are we talking like five years or like, a, like to develop this to the point where it can benefit people or... I, I think it's it's just best to just encapsulate all the time I've spent in science, which is so the discovery of catalytic antibodies was made in 1988, and uh, by us and people had been asking for catalytic antibodies since the 50s. So it took us took science to discover uh, catalytic antibodies to just prove that they exist in nature. That took 40 years. Since then, we've been so busy discovering the new principles all this ancientness and the linkage with evolution and how exactly to pull out catalysts, how to do vaccination. That has taken another 30 years. Incidentally, all uh, funded, 95% of the funding was from the National Institutes of Health. And it took 40 years or so, maybe 35 is closer to the the actual stuff. Now, the, the, the what we are in now, after all this time, uh, we are uniquely, we have the unique know-how to take these platform technologies and show that they work. It is the last mile, or maybe I would say the last three miles, or last five miles. I'm hesitant to say that it's very easy now. That there will be challenges as we uh, as we wrap up the matter. Uh, before we talk about the challenges, uh, I'm just curious, are, is there like, so for, for people with neurodegenerative disorders and, and uh, HIV-infected people, I don't know how to say that appropriately, but is there any other populations or any other people that you're really hoping to uh, affect with this technology? Or was that does that capture it very well? No, I mean, so, sorry, go, go for it, Steph. So, I mean, the, I mean you, you, you can see that we are talking about uh, 
neurodegenerative disease that is uh, caused by a molecule that suddenly the, doesn't fall properly and become toxic. And then you are talking about HIV, which is a foreign entity. I think those two examples are exemplifying the versatility of our platform. I think we are at a place where we can on-demand produce catalytic antibodies to uh, any target and um, uh, and potentially as well uh, electrophilic uh, uh, vaccine. So to answer directly to your question, I, I think we, we have uh, focused a lot on um, neurodegenerative uh, diseases or diseases that are due to accumulation of uh, aggregated molecules. And uh, for that, we are we were able to isolate uh, catabodies to to uh, so to uh, amyloid beta, which is causing uh, which is part of Alzheimer, uh, tau, and uh, another molecule is transtyrating that is uh, uh, causing um, that accumulates in systemic organs like heart and kidney, and uh, that uh, that occur usually in uh, in the aging population. So we have, so we have been focusing on those type of uh, targets just because they were, they seem to be easy to find because they are already abundantly present in the antibody repertoire. Similarly, for HIV, um, uh, certain microbes express a type of protein that are uh, already uh, recognized by uh, natural antibody that are expressed in everybody. And they, we call them super antigen and uh, microbes are full of that kind of protein. So it's another class of uh, protein that we think we can easily isolate uh, and produce catalytic antibodies. But in the literature, you have a plethora of, um, of articles uh, uh, reporting catalytic antibody against uh, uh, other toxic self uh, uh, antigen or against microbial antigen. So, I just think it's it's just uh, our platform technology can be applied to anything, and so people can come to us and say we are interested in having a catalytic antibody against this protein. I think we should be able to to do it. Makes sense. So it's like um, I don't know. I'm not good at analogies. My I keep being told by people to stop making them. <laughs> they always come out really weird. The uh, I don't know. I won't do it, but I was going to like try and make simplify it. But I, I just earlier today, I tried explaining like a, a complex thing in a, like as water. And it was so bad that the person got more confused. So I won't do that. I think you explained it very well. <laughs> but, I think, um, I, I think um, the, the, the straightforward analogy is that the regular antibodies, uh, the ones that are not catalytic, the ones that only bind, they are already a $50 billion industry and there are many, many diseases that they are targeting. Cancer, um, autoimmune disease, uh, amyloid disease, including attempts with Alzheimer. So the laundry list can keep going on and on. One of her, uh, Stephanie's points was that our technology is an on-demand production of catalysts to, you tell us the the target and we will deliver and we will succeed we are claiming uh, with most targets that you want uh, an antibody to a catalytic antibody to and catalytic antibodies are intrinsically superior 
to regular antibodies because of their speed and also because they are they don't cause as much inflammation so for those reasons we it's a broad platform and then we have examples the lead products that we that we talked about today alzheimer hiv and and some others uh, backbone uh, diseases those are lead products what we need we are at the stage that we must quickly the last uh, few miles as you put it we must quickly uh, show that these are medically usable the first medical use of a catalytic antibody is our big goal right now that will be a big milestone and then the others will fall in place either through our company not necessarily we but but things will take on and it takes more than one one group to 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 grow a new technology and other people which already some other people have uh, found similar things as we have and they are excited about our technology we just hope to grow the the field and the technology for general usage uh, against human disease this mm-hmm. um so what what would like what is it just you two on the team or like are you looking for is it just you two? And then are you looking to find other people to help develop it? As well, you, like, yeah. We have a partner, Richard Massey. Um, he is a, a, an able scientist. He was a professor originally, but then in about 1990, he became COO. Uh, he was the his major executive in a, in a publicly traded company. So he has a lot of biotech experience and he is our CEO, so he, we run things by him, and and on the science part, uh, the company runs things by me, uh, and and so we have a nice uh, collaboration already. There are uh, individuals who are involved. We have a whole host of consultants who were my collaborators during my academic years. Some of the younger people we will may bring back who used to be my postdocs and junior faculty. Maybe they come in as as we grow, but what we what we really need to do is now to build the physical facilities, get enough funding, to to attract younger people and older people uh, to 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 help us. And and there is a large range of people who we already have to tap, and that's a good news. We just need to get some success under our belt, some translational success. So you're the like the chief science officer, Stephanie. Are you like the chief technical officer? Like how how like so we I know who the CEO is, and then you're like the I don't know what 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 are you guys titles? Do you guys have titles? I don't know what's Stephanie's role. I know I get your role, but like <laughs> Stephanie, what, what are you up to? I am, you fit in? I am a, a principal scientist, scientific director. I I'm going to be basically the one. Uh, managing the science part. So the lab, the work lab, uh, managing the lab is my, I'm going back to the lab too in the next month as soon as the, uh, the, the settings are there. So that's my role. Yeah. Is to make the things happen. The practical part, I guess, of our company. Now the theoretical also, and I hope you listen to me a little bit as you decide what to do on a daily basis. Yeah. A little bit, not completely. So, yeah. uh, I, but but really, without Steph, uh, Stephanie is the doer. Uh, 
I am I do a little bit. I do a lot, but my role is to sort of find the scientific direction along with Stephanie. We work extremely closely. In fact, we are sort of so close we we have to check our thoughts against each other's thoughts. Well, Steph, it's a little tiresome to be so so. We we spend hours and hours just discussing things and deciding what to do. It truly is a joint effort between Stephanie and me. That's good to hear. Is there for you, Stephanie? Since uh, you don't, I would assume you're at least twenty years younger than Sudhir. Like, do you have any like? Uh, I don't know why age matters at all, but I'm just curious. Like, is there anything that you want to build? Or, like anywhere you want to go within the company or? Like I know you guys are like partners and stuff, but is there is there anything you want to do? Do you want to like move up into like a CEO yeah. type role one day or? Yeah, down the line, as that's what my goal is. Um, so which will be good because I would have uh, you know built it from the from bottom to top, and I think uh, to be a good CEO, you need to understand what's happening in the lab. Uh, I still have uh, knowledge, uh, so. Um, uh, business knowledge has to be built and that's what I'm working on in, for the past few months. I'm having a crash course with Dr. Massey and, and, and Dr. Paul on this aspect. Um, so it's also good because it's new. Everything, everything is new and it's always uh, exciting to have uh, uh, new things to do. Mm-hmm. So that's my goal. So, down so don't, there, Steph, you know. don't be too successful with the medicines we make. There is a saying in English literature, I think Shakespeare said it, the old order disappears, yielding place to new. That's yeah. the relationship between old age and youth. Yeah. And yeah. if our medicines are too successful, Aubrey's yeah. vision of immortality, if it comes true, <laughs> the old order will not disappear so fast. You'll have to cope with old people. I'm fine with that. It can take some time. It's okay. Yeah, it's um. Does this have, does this have like a big impact on? I mean, I know it, Alzheimer's and stuff. So that's an age-related illness. But is are there age-related factors to this that you think that will like it'll benefit, like, like what Aubrey's doing? Like, have a big tie into that? Like, making us live longer and and increasing our health span? Yeah, I mean, we we've alluded to that issue earlier that uh, in old age. Many things go wrong. Aubrey's has put together a very nice compendium of uh, factors. What causes aging? So he's got the seven factors of aging. And what we do uh, is, is uh, well, here's the two parts of what, well, maybe the utilitarian part is the best to, to emphasize here. These antibodies, they can be made to any target. So no matter what the cause if we know the reason, what is the molecule that is causing the disease, aging, like in our case, the amyloid beta and the tau and the transthyretin, these are all proteins that misfold. They, they turn, uh, they don't uh, form the correct three-dimensional structure. Instead, they misfold into, into bad amyloids. And this is a cause of aging. Alzheimer is caused by that. And the transthyretin causes uh, this disease in the, uh, the amyloid disease in the backbone. So there are 30 um, molecules that form amyloids. All of them can be targeted by catalytic antibodies to 
retard. In fact, the good news here is that nature already uses catalytic antibodies to protect against aging. So, if you take these target proteins in the in in the bottle of water, if you mix them, they within seconds they become unstructured. They misfold. Seconds. Well, in in reality, a seventy-year-old man, it's only if the disease is only beginning. Sometimes it's early onset. Maybe sixty is the better uh, reference yeah, yeah. point. So amyloids show up late in life, and catalytic antibodies, according to our work, they protect again. They are naturally occurring. That, that's what we. The best one is what we are trying to isolate, and then say, okay, now we will give intravenous injection with this catalytic antibody, or we will do gene transfer and deliver it on a long-term basis to do exactly what nature is doing but has lost the capacity to do as we age as more and more target the amyloid is the target as more and more amyloid forms and one can make a similar argument pretty much for any age related disease aubrey for instance has often said to me this uh, this cross linking of uh, of uh, the molecules that form So collagen in our musculoskeletal system it gets cross-linked. <clears throat> That's an aging age-associated phenomenon. So if we could break those cross-links, that will be an anti-aging that will help us live longer. So in a nutshell, it's a collection of much work, each directed to 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 an individual target. and that's why we need to expand it won't be solved only by fixing alzheimer healthy aging we aging is a collection of many disorders and we will contribute we are hoping as we go along this um this is a question i, I that was in my head earlier but that it, i forgot it so it popped up just now so it might be a little disjointed but that we were talking about evolution you know, of of catabolic cat, catabolic I don't know. I have problems with names. Catabolic. Am I saying this right? Catabolic. Cata- catabodies. Catabodies. <laughs> catabodies. There you go. Simple to say. Yeah, I, I was combining it with antibodies. The I, I don't know why I do that sometimes, but so we kind of know where they come in history. But I'm also curious because, like, I, most people think of people as static, like that we haven't really been evolving or refining for the last several thousand years. But like the brain has gotten smaller. um but it also has had evolution narrative traits that make it a little quicker so i'm curious is is anything changed like is our immune system changing at all over the years like it, do we see any new trends like outside of introducing things that like you two are, are building is there anything innately coming from evolution like darwinian evolution in humans that are, are that we're noting like that's it's just a question i i thought of earlier and i i was just curious if you if that's a if we notice any like new changes coming out of so like, the question uh, if i might translate the yeah. a different way the question is is uh, catalytic antibody evolution finished or is it still evolving yeah yeah so it's better way of saying it right right so i i think uh, it for sure is still evolving um the the modern and catalytic antibodies human antibodies are for sure more defensive than the shark antibodies we spoke about i think we do a lot of basic science we talk about evolution to understand what's going on and 
Is it valid to come up with all these new theories? So these are background issues. Now, the, the, the current human is pretty competent in making catalytic antibodies. The future human, if you leave things alone, that means if you don't, uh, if there is a survival advantage to improving the catalytic advantage, uh, catalytic antibodies, then evolution will go on. Uh, many, many uh, people who are, uh, who believe in the self more than society factors, they would claim that we have slowed evolution generally because we, uh, if the medicines work, we save the weakest amongst us. If the medicines work best, we, we slow down aging. So, and, and the last part of this is that you got to, you got to superimpose that uh, for, for evolution to happen, you need to improve what is happening in the reproductive span. So if you are 90 years old and maybe past your reproductive span, then it'll, your genes, improved genes will die with you. They're not going to be passed on. So it's a good idea to, to make these genes better. Now, I'll finish with last one thought. I actually got into an argument with a reviewer who said, your catalytic antibodies to Alzheimer, they are going to work with very old people who are past their reproductive stage. And uh, therefore, there cannot be any survival advantage. Your whole theory is wrong, is what the man or the woman claimed. And I countered by saying, look, don't discount the wisdom of old people. As we discussed, Stephanie, a few minutes back, in our own interactions. So please do listen to me sometimes because maybe the ideas that I offer, maybe it will improve the lives of young people, meaning survival advantage, more quickly than if you didn't have the repertoire of knowledge and maybe just a little bit of wisdom also, if you didn't have that. So my point is, all people can contribute indirectly to the reproductive function of generating superhumans. At least we can contribute indirectly, if not directly. Well, that was a, just a segue into <laughs> subject. I think there's a book called Homo Deus, Deus or something like that, where, they, where he talks about... That's probably not the name of the book. I'm not on, on point today. But there's like this book that talks about how we're, we're, we're at the stage where we're basically like systematically evolving ourselves like we're doing it like we're creating things to make us live longer and to introduce things into us that wouldn't occur naturally and at a, a rapid rate so like it's not really darwinian evolution anymore it's more like homo sapien evolution like we're like doing it to ourselves which is pretty interesting like i, I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that i think humans the, the drive is towards improvement efficiency engineering improvement of our genes improvements of our protein and I think it's all to the good. Yeah. But, um, okay. So I think we have time for like a couple of quick questions and then I'll let you guys go. And thank you for you know taking time to talk with me. But the, so I always like to kind of hear like, you know, people who are like clearly very smart, what things are unanswered for them. So like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson says this thing that the more, you know, the more you can trace the outline of your ignorance. And so I'm curious, is there anything for, is there anything that, you wonder about where you're like, oh, I don't know how that works. But maybe like, maybe one day you're going to figure it out or it's just like one of those things you're curious about. Uh, for either of you, do you have anything like that that's like, oh, there's like this 
there's this thing over here. I don't know how it works. And I wish I did. Because it'd be awesome. I don't know. But uh, yeah, do you have anything like that? Uh, Stephanie, if you want to go first. Like in the in our field or anything? Anything. Like, uh, yeah, it could be anything. It could be like about ants. I don't know if you have like a really big nerd about ants or something. It could be anything. Yeah, something um, that's not answered. Well, I guess for uh, for me, the big one is a big bang. Uh, how all this started, you know? I don't know if we will ever be able to... You even know that one. Mm-hmm. That that's the one that it kind of bugs me because it's like if if there's a if there's a cause for the universe existing, I always imagine like what what happens if you take the cause away? Like if you take the Big Bang away, like what would be here? But that bugs me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have like I don't know if that bugs you, but what what about you, Sadir? Well, yeah, it bugs me, but you know some issues are more ambiguous than others, and I think what I've learned. Uh, in my relatively long 60s, 7-year-old life is that uh, uh, while curiosity about Big Bang and and even other lesser bangs in our test tubes that we work with, Stephanie and I, that curiosity ought not to intimidate us from from, uh, defining what is normal. And now I, I actually want to link them, the two things. I think the vastness of knowledge that we don't know <coughs> that I have learned to be humble in in approaching the big bang and the small bang. And and I say, all right, I have XYZ means to understand things. I'm I'm curious about a, a zillion things. I, I think a baby like curiosity is wonderful if you can channel it. And and my grandchild, I was, he's got a little thing on his uh, T-shirt, Curious George, and I was walking him Boston recently. I was just walking on the street with him. And and people were, he was looking around, pulling at my hand, wouldn't walk in a disciplined way. So uh, my, my point is curiosity. It starts with curiosity. We ought to nurture that, how to combine the curiosity uh, with the many things that I speak. I'm curious about into into getting something done is the real challenge in the end for all of us, not just me or Stephanie or you. That's what we are all trying to do. Is, but is, is there is, oh uh, there's feedback there. Is there anything that is like like what Stephanie was saying with the Big Bang that you're like curious like they're curious about like oh hey I don't I don't have the answer for it but uh, maybe one I, day. I, I I don't want to go to the Big Bang but I want to go to the to my colleague who's now dead, uh, Marcellonis from Arizona, he proposed the theory that the Big Bang in immunology was the evolution of uh, adaptive mutations in the antibodies and in the T-cell receptors. And he said that this the reason why we don't see the missing link prior to sharks, they've all disappeared. And sharks have a pretty, pretty robust adaptive system. Not, not as good as humans, but pretty good. And he, and, and, and so he says the big bang in immunology was the sudden generation of, uh, the adaptive system, uh, the most ideal, the, 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 a good adaptive system. And then look, everything else disappeared and we don't even, we can't even see those organisms. You talked about fossils earlier. So I, I think, the role of Darwin's 
evolution in in uh, over zilli over many many years or millions of years versus the cultural adaptiveness of a molecular adaptiveness in antibodies that we show which you mentioned and i guess for me what is, what is intriguing is how humans operate and how they combine it i sort of alluded to that you know like chance and necessity it drives us culturally it drives us it drives us uh, in science in music in whatever so just wondering about such things those are intriguing stuff in my opinion yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I'm kind of like curious, George. I like that like childlike curiosity with things. Like it's just always like, oh, there's some really cool stuff going on. But uh, so I, I guess the last question for for you two is for people who have been listening in or watching, if this you know on YouTube, and they're like, oh, these people are great. I would love to help out or contribute in some way. Is there a is there like a website or a place where they can like learn more and try and help out or, or to stay in touch? Is so newsletter. Uh, absolutely. So we have a website that we update uh, reasonably frequently. We, in the last couple of months, we have raised um, about uh, half a million dollars, and the company has been funded a lot over the past few years through various sources. But, but the new money we've raised through angels for very specific purposes. We want to raise another uh, seven hundred thousand for the initial round. And then within a few months, we we will go into a, a larger round of funding that we we need a lot of money if we are to ever uh, tackle these big problems that we have taken on. It, it, the drug development effort is it, it is an expensive effort. We are in touch with uh, various uh, uh, people and. And and we would appreciate people who are deep pockets uh, investors who can appreciate our I guess background and our goals who who have who are like minded. Uh, we would appreciate uh, people coming up to us either through the website uh, or, or once we get contact information in direct ways, discussions about funding and investment and making this uh, goal happen. Um, and our website, we we have the contact information there. Yeah, I I, w- I would just add, uh, even uh, enthusiastic scientists can come and join us. I mean, yeah, <laughs> we uh, we need hands as well and brain. There is much things to uh, to improve, uh, and I'm sure we will have to face many uh, difficulties, and so we will have to. Uh, think about how to resolve them. So I think, yeah, increasing our team is uh, one parameter as well for our success. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. And it's covalent bioscience, right? Yes, in one word, .com. Yeah, it'll be in the show notes for everyone who's watching, listening, however you want to say it. All right, then, that was the, well, my last question, if it's a quick one. Do you you two read books at all? And if so, do you have any recommendations? I'm always looking for new books to read. (laughs) Me, I don't have much time, but the last book I read was um, The Girl on the Train, um, mm. and uh, which was, uh, yeah, about a few months back. It was my last last one. What about you, Sudhir? I, I am very well read, uh, but uh, I sort of stopped doing slow reading about 10, 15 years ago because of time. Now I speed read. Uh, even books, like I just trans them, I, I read them, get the gist, and 
and figure out uh, what the central point is. So I'm, I'm rather, I come from a family, when I was a kid, both my parents were English professors. So I'm very well read in, in literature in general. And, and then more recently, I amused myself through customary means, which is like, you know, thrillers and uh, whodunits and that kind of stuff. I read periodically. The, the science I speed read these days because I figure it out mostly. Don't, don't know if that was a adequate answer. Not much of a reader these days. <laughs> Is there uh, any any suggestions? Like, I, I would guess you'd probably like Ishmael, but that I don't know why. Yeah, any anything you'd recommend? Like a couple? Yeah, um, uh, I think in Immunity... This, we talked about evolution a lot. There are books by by uh, uh, the Nobel Prize winner this year, Greg Winters, Sir Greg Winters. He is in, into into directed evolution, antibody phage display. Uh, so many of these drugs we are talking about, they emerge from this. So on a science level, uh, I think... Um, he is a good writer. The, the Nobel Prize also was given for enzyme-directed evolution this year. This is, I'm forgetting the second name. It's a, it's a, a, a um, San Diego scientist. So I guess I'll let go of that one. Um, then finally, on a non-science basis, the one book I read recently, a translation of um, a sort of a quasi-religious book called Mahabharata. This is an Indian religious tome. People think of it as religious. Uh, it, and there's a Bhagavad Gita with it. So there are many philosophical concepts there that sort of integrate practicality with, with theory. And, and it's called the Bhagavad Gita and Mahabharat. It's a combined sort of a volume, which I actually read some 600 pages of it word by word about a year ago or so. So those are my thoughts about reading. Frances Arnold, right? Yeah, there, there are many translations. The one I read was by a guy called Radha Krishnan. He was, uh, that was about, it's a 40-year-old translation. All right, sweet. I'll, I'll actually check that out. I've been, wa been wanting to get more into like Indian Indian uh, religion. That's not. I'm not joking. I I, I like really reading religious and uh, and uh, those type of texts. I read the Quran and the Bible cover to cover. They're very interesting. I've, I've I've read the Bible also, but I'm I, I ought to declare that this uh, final closing of our discussion. This ought not to be interpreted as a as a signal that I'm religious. It's more curiosity that yeah, yeah, yeah. that drives me to read religion. Mm -hmm. okay. oh, same here. Very good. Yeah, it's, yeah, I'm the I'm the same boat. Yeah, it's a good note. Some some people might take it up the wrong way. Yeah, it's 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 a fun book to make you think differently. All right, then I want to thank you both for coming out, and being on the show. And that was Stephanie and Sudhir. Check out their website. See it in the show notes. Check out the book recommendations, and let me know what your thoughts. If you like this or love this or anything like that, let me know so I know how to make more content like that. Always appreciate feedback. 
other than that, I want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement free from now until forever, which is called Patreon. If you go to Patreon and look for Learning with Lowell, you'll see this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell this year, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends, please and thank you.